How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 200. I'm very excited. It's a milestone episode. And I was racking my brain on something special to do for this show. And uh, as luck would have it, my friend JD Souther was performing in Santa Barbara. So I got in the car with my friend Mark Islam, and he brought his friend Rosemary Butler, who is, <laughs> talk about some stories, she's going to be on the, on the Hey Human in an upcoming episode, because that woman has, she, look her up, Rosemary Butler, incredible life she has had. So we got up to Santa Barbara, saw JD perform, and he was very kind, because I'm sure he was exhausted after a very excellent and long show to sit down with me in his hotel and let me ask him some questions. And this is that. J.D. Souther, of course, a hit songwriter, legendary songwriter. He's written hits for the Eagles, Don Henley uh, in his own right, um, Linda Ronstadt, Roy Orbison, uh, Stevie Nicks, James Taylor. Did I say James Taylor already? I may have said it twice, but you know what? It's James Taylor. He can be said twice. Just an example, you're only lonely that JD wrote, uh, man, that thing has been covered, uh, cut by artists several dozen times. There's so many different versions of that. Of course, made most famous by Linda Ronstadt and Roy Orbison. And JD Souther wrote that song by himself, which is also very cool. And of course, JD has put out a ton of his own records as well. We talked about his songwriting, obviously, but also about his childhood, his influences. Uh, he talks about the time he got shot at, uh, just all sorts of things. It was such a fun conversation. In other news, of course, social media, Hey Human Podcast is on Facebook and Instagram. You can find me personally on social media under Susan Ruthism under Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com if you'd like to email me. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. SusanRuth.com if you want to keep up with me in other realms of my endeavors, uh, art and music, uh, that kind of performances, that kind of thing. And there's a donation button if you want to donate to Hey Human, please do so. It's right there on the front of the HeyHumanPodcast.com website. Also on that HeyHumanPodcast.com website is a links page. JD's episode has tons of links for all sorts of things that we talk about. Every episode that I uh, put out has a links page section there on the website that is full up of information, books, movies, conversations, articles, all that stuff. So stay safe out there. Thanks for listening, everybody. Here we go. JD Souther, welcome to Hey Human. Howdy. Howdy. That smoky voice that doesn't smoke. I'm doing smoky voice tonight. <laughs> I should make sure you're you're actually kind of quiet. I am gonna move this up a little. That's a, well. I'm booming. I have a booming voice. No, you have a sweet voice. <laughs> I just mine's. I'm, I'm taking it easy on mine. Yeah. Because I've just sung for two and a half hours. I know, and you did an excellent job. Thank you. We're in Santa Barbara. The beautiful Santa Barbara. We were uh, the at the Lobero Theater, and now we're at the beautiful... Uh, Clifton Hotel. Yes. Yes, and the Lobero Theater, and you've played there before. Yes, I have. Uh, several it's times. Beautiful. It's beautiful. It was an opera house, you know? Yeah. I loved all the pictures in the yeah. green room. Yeah. That was cool. I know. Segovia played there. Isaac Stern played there. Plus all those great actors, Henry Ford and right. James Stewart. And, there you go. And Mitchum. Mitchum. The Moose was there. Yeah, it's a legendary place, and it's beautifully restored. And I love playing those old 
opera houses and vaudeville houses. Like There's an intimacy you're... to it, I think. Yeah, well, it's little as 500 people or something. Yeah. It's great, yeah. It's good. All right, let's uh, let's start at the beginning. You're yeah. a Texan. No. You're not? Weren't you oh, born yeah. in Texas? No, I was born in Detroit. Oh, you were born in Detroit. Actually, downtown you, you, Detroit, Harper up, Hospital, right downtown. You grew right up downtown. in Texas. Well, I, we lived in Detroit until I was three, and then we moved to Cleveland. I lived in Shaker Heights. And then we moved to Dallas when my mother was pregnant with the eldest of my little sisters. And she dominoed there, and then we moved to Amarillo, and uh, I started school. And then, so I, all my school years were in Amarillo, Texas. How many siblings? Uh, two. We had, I had another little sister five years later. We're all five years apart, so it's perfect. We're never in each other's way. Uh, did you have a, a bestie within the siblings? No, no, because they were, they were the sisters. They were the girls. I, I, I was the prince, you know. I was, I was the only child, only grandchild for years, so everything was showered on me until I was nearly six. And then my, uh, suddenly my, we moved to Texas, and my mother uh, and all of her sisters started having kids, and they were all having girls, so they were all busy, and I was free. It was wonderful. Nobody tried to dress you up and all no, that? No, no. I was, I was like, just, I just took off. We were at the far west end of town in Amarillo, and it was like, you know, the shot at in, of Indiana Jones, the end of the movie where they're riding off into the sunset, there's just a windmill. Yeah. That's like almost from out our back window. And that's where, that's where Spielberg shot that. So I, that's what I that's where I grew up in Texas Panhandle. So my the, the the my mother and her sisters all started having girls, and I was free free at last. Did you have a misspent youth? Oh, I hope so. I'm sure I miss yeah. To get into uh, trouble much? Misspent is not the same as wasted. Of course not. Did you get into trouble? I got into lots of. I trouble. did, but I got away with a lot more than than I got caught at. Why do you think that is? I know that. I don't think it. <laughs> no, I mean, why do you think you got away with it? Because <laughs> I didn't want to get caught. Yeah. So you outsmarted the, the police? or. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And my parents in school. I also had a very easy window to sneak out at night. Oh, that helps. Did you yeah. have a family dog that would rat No, no, my, my family were not dog people. I had one dog for about two years, and he uh, was poisoned while we were away. Oh my God. For the summer, it was horrible, yeah. Did, did you ever figure out who did it? No, it had killed him. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, it, was, it was awkward because my mother was not an animal person, and this dog was a big, huge kind of coyote. It looked like a giant coyote. And uh, he, my little sister was trying to learn to walk, and he just kept bashing into her and knocking her down. And he just loved her. He was just giving her giant puppy love, but it was like 90-pound puppy love, and she was a little toddler. So we went off to my grandmother's for the summer, and he stayed with some friends of ours in a place called Pleasant Valley. And some uh, some devil poisoned all the dogs on one block in one night. Oh my God, that's yeah. horrendous. It is horrendous. Yeah. You're a huge uh, dog rights. I'm a huge dog. You're a huge dog. Good boy. Sit, Ubu. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, that's a big thing for you. Is dog activism is mm, it yeah I love yeah. Them. I love dogs yeah do you uh, work with um, Emmy Lou uh, one of my dogs came from Emmy Lou's yeah yeah from uh, Bonaparte's retreat yeah yeah the little white wolf Layla dogs Emmy's the one who na best. named her oh really yeah oh very cool were you uh, a music kid 
Yes, always. I started playing violin in the fourth grade. Did you like it, or was were you one of those kids like, God, oh, don't make me practice? No, no one made me ever do. No one ever made me do anything. I had a violin that my grandma, the opera singing grandma, gave me a handmade violin. But it was made by a guy named Techman in Detroit in the forties, and. Uh, but it was a full-size violin, and I was a little kid. I didn't get tall until I was in high school, so I was sawing away on this giant violin, and all these other kids had these three-quarter-size violins. Huh. But I played, uh, my first recital, I played a Mozart Gavat, and I was done with it. I was like, okay, give me something I can play jazz on. A uh, yeah, I was going to say, because the melodies you sing in your, in, the, in your songs, to me, have a lot of jazz. Yeah, they're more horn-like. Then, I, then I, I wanted to play tenor sax, but it was too big for me. I was a little kid, but I know clarinet and tenor sax are the same fingering, same key, reads the same on the chart. So I played clarinet for a couple, three years till I grew into a tenor. And I was just starting to get good at tenor sax, and then I discovered drums. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. And that's what I, that's the only instrument I can really play well. But you play several. Yeah, yeah most of them, just not that well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still bang around on that? I have two sets of drums. I have one always set up in the barn in the studio, yeah. Mm. I'm sure the dogs love that. Uh, these dogs are a little sketchy with drums. Yeah. Uh, the bully boys were absolutely indifferent. It's funny, drums didn't scare them and thunder terrified them. These guys are the opposite. Th th they can be out in the rain and they don't care. Yeah. But drums are a little unsettling for the, this, this couple of dogs. I remember when you first got the... the was it Layla? Layla, the white one. Yeah, I still had a doc were, then, the old, yeah, the old bully boy. They were kind boy, of too. learning how to play with each other They and were stuff. just learning, yeah. yeah. It was interesting, too, because he was 15 and she was two. <laughs> but they, they formed a, a perfect relationship. Yeah. You get that a lot in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, you sure do. <laughs> I do. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, Doc passed away finally, and then I got uh, Buster, who somehow has become Bob. I don't know why I started calling him that Bob. Happens. He, he reminded me of the way uh, Bob Dylan said his name once. I don't know, Bob. So I started going, hey, Bob. And he comes, he likes being called Bob, so. Oh, well, there you go. You can't, yeah. you can't take a man's name away from Hell him. Hell no. <laughs> Were you a songwriter as a kid? Did you? No, no, it never, never occurred to me. When did that sickness sink in? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wasn't, uh, that was, uh, that particular virus attacked me in about 70, 1969 or 70, I think. I just hadn't, wasn't getting any work in L.A. as a drummer or a sax player, so I went home to my dad's music store and I said, I need a guitar. There's all these people I'm hanging out with, they're playing guitars and pianos and they're writing songs and uh, I have a motorcycle, it's hard to carry drums around, I'm not getting work anyway, Can I, I need a guitar. And my, my dad said, well, you, you have a clarinet, two saxophones and two sets of drums, what do you possibly need a guitar for? I said, I want to try writing songs. And I, my place is too small for a piano, so can I have, my dad had a music store, that's what we did growing up, we had a family music store. So he gave me a Gibson Dove. That's a nice present. Was, well, I think he made me pay him something for it, so it was a, <laughs> just as a way of teaching me something. But. And you taught yourself then? Oh yeah, I never had any lessons on that. Should be obvious. You've just seen me play. I've never had any lessons on guitar. <laughs> I am hardly anyone to judge someone on guitar playing. I eke by myself. 
for sure. You and I met, remember, at Union Station. We Union, sat, Union remember Station. Remember that? We sat we next did. to each other, uh, and I remember my friend Libby and I were sitting next to you and a friend of yours, and we were commenting on each other's snacks and things. I thought, I'm going to leave my Hey Human business card before I leave. And then you called me, and that was one of the nicest compliments I ever got, by the way. Thank when you, you. called, so thank, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. No, really, thank no, you. really. No. I re- thank <laughs> no, you. No, I insist. Thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so that, that that's pretty cool. Just happenstance. Delightful to know you. What were we doing at Union Station? You were with a man. Y'all were just snacking, and we were. My friend Libby and I were snacking, and uh, there. I think you were talking about something on uh, a news cycle of something on NPR or something, and it was something that you had said that caught my ear. I thought, oh, I bet you that guy would like Hey Human. I could only see the side of your face, and I didn't want to be too intrusive, so I didn't know it was you. And that's like when I got up and set the card down, I said, you gentlemen all have to fight over this card, and that's when we laughed. And, oh. Yeah, and you did your due diligence, so I, cheers I on did, you. I did, yes, thank yeah. you. You yeah. saw the side of my face. Was it the friendly side or the unfriendly side? Uh, there was a mask. Camera guys <laughs> used to tell me that. I have a, one side that looks severe and one that looks friendly. Oh, interesting. My best friend is Ellen Severe. Maybe you're related somehow. <laughs> <laughs> is she Ellen Severe of Severe Park? Yeah. Is she? Yeah. Really, of the Severe family? Yeah, she's wonderful. It's one of the great parks in Nashville, Tennessee, for those of you who don't know. That's right. It's called Severe Park. And one of the great families of Tennessee. You would know. Yeah, I would. <laughs> their, their family is like my second family. So when I lived in Nashville, they were very kind and still are. They, nice. We call the Severe House for Wayward Girls. You know, all of Ellen's girlfriends who spend a lot of time. Ellen's mother is an incredible cook. So when we need it's fattening, no. we go there. <laughs> and she fattens us up and makes us happy. It's a lovely place. Do you think she would do that for me? I do, indeed. Oh, my gosh. Ellen's dad would be mad. I'm not interested in Ellen's dad. I'm interested in the girls <laughs> and being fattened up. Okay. I can arrange some stuff okay. when you go back to Nashville. They'll be delighted. Okay, so you get a guitar. What's the next step? You get back to California. Who are you running around with at this point? Where well, I had sort of uh, abandoned the uh, the guys that I came to California from Texas with. I, I rode out there with another band because they needed another singer and I needed a ride. <laughs> and I decided I'd rather sell my car, keep the cash, and ride with them than drive my car. And then they got a record deal, but I didn't like their songs so I didn't want to be part of the deal. So I was just kind of, I just left. I was sort of cast on the sea of uncertainty where I still sail. And then I met some other songwriters. I met Glenn Fry, uh, not through anything musical, but because he, uh, his girlfriend, his girlfriend's sister was my girlfriend. The sisters were in a, uh, a singing group called Honey Limited. Uh, stupid name, but it was just four gorgeous girls. I think somebody gave them the name. I don't know. And uh, there were two sisters in the group, and Glenn, they, they were from Detroit, which is where Glenn is from, Ann Arbor. And he came out to visit his girlfriend. I was hanging out with my girlfriend, the sisters, and Glenn and I started hanging around, and we, Glenn and I were both out of work. We're like, boy, trying to write songs. So mostly we just sat around and listened to music and wrote music and played and played stupid free gigs and 
But it was great. It was wonderful. It was almost never any more fun than that. Mm-hmm. So we almost we had almost no idea what we were doing, but just a glimmer. It's a funny thing to think about because you obviously are you, and Glenn Fry is obviously Glenn Fry, and you know legends and songwriting. But at one point, you were just two guys sitting in a room. Two guys sitting in a room, not even in Echo Park. This is before we moved to. We lived on, at Ten Twenty Laguna, right above Echo Park. Uh, in this little rundown, crappy building. Jackson Brown lived downstairs, and Glenn and I lived upstairs. But before that, we lived uh, in the valley in Toluca Lake, in like this dingbat apartment, just because it was easy to, they didn't require any money down. You just give them a couple hundred bucks, and they'd give you a room. And next thing you know, uh, we were there all the time. And the, and the girls had an apartment, too. The, we lived with them for a while because we had no money. So there were four girls in the band, two-bedroom apartment. One of the girls was off with her boyfriend most of the time. So it's three girls and Glenn and I in a two-bedroom apartment, a small two-bedroom apartment. And then that's how we started. And you, you two started a band together. With we did. The funniest name to me. And immediately I thought, that's really phallic. <laughs> it was, both words, yeah. yeah. It was Long Branch Penny Whistle. Yeah, thought that, that can't be lost on them. No. No, it wasn't lost on our manager either. They thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Did you know, I'm sure you've been asked this question a zillion times, but I've never asked you, did you know that the, the, the magic that was about to unfold? Did, could you tell? Hmm. Because I think now, when you bit. write a great song, you're like, oh, I know that's a great song. No, no, no. I'm, no. I'm not much more sure of it now than really? I was then, no. Interesting. No, it's still always like... Sort of trying to start a car on ice. Hmm. Or as uh, uh, William Stafford put it, uh, swimming the Australian crawl. (laughs) That's what he called writing poetry. It's just work. It's just work, and you're not sure. Whenever I finish a song, I think, "What if this is the last song I ever that ever comes to me? What if the muses tell me to, you know, kiss off?" That's interesting because I always think, "Is it actually finished?" So I, n- really? I never know when it's finished. Oh, yeah. that's fascinating. If I was a painter, I'd still be like slobbering things all over the first canvas. I get asked that a lot about painting, and really, it's just one minute it's not done, and then it's done. Or is it? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's or weird. Or is it? It is, because if I try and add something, I'm like, oh, fuck, and then I have to take it away because I've gone too far. Oils or acrylics? Uh, I don't have the patience really for oil. I've, d- I've dabbled yeah. in it, but mostly acrylic and things like I throw in papers and glass and sand and all sorts of. I like texture. I'm a ah, tactile kid. You're one of those materials. I'm a material artists. girl living in a material world. I see. <laughs> now I'm. I can't draw a circle with a protractor. I just have <laughs> no skills for that. But uh, if I painted, it would be in watercolor. I love what watercolor mm-hmm. does. That's one of the toughest. My brother's excellent at watercolor. I well, can't you can't take it. things back Mm-mm. in watercolor. You're sort of committed to the paper or the canvas then. Yeah, there's a, a lovely ballet to watercolor. There is indeed, yeah. Yeah. Easy yeah. to fall. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's so there's such It's sublime. I think it's one of the it more is. sublime of the craft of it painting. It is, indeed. I, I painted a, a watercolor sunset. This is such an obvious, stupid, like childish thing to paint. But I painted a watercolor sunset that my mother thought was quite beautiful. So she framed it and uh, she put it on the wall as though it was good art. And we had some actual, some good art on the wall. 
and people would say, oh, my, uh, Lodi, who, who did this? And she'd say, well, Dave did that. And they'd really, how old was he? And she'd say, 40. <laughs> it looked like an eight-year-old drawing, you know. It's just <laughs> the most simplistic thing, but... And my mother loved it. I loved that at 40, she hung your art on the wall. She did. And on that, the fridge yeah. and stuff. Yeah. The little handprint. No, no, no. This is, it was proper, <laughs> framed and... I love that. Yeah. Your parents uh, got to see quite a journey for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they were there all the way. I mean, they suffered through, you know, screechy beginning violins, squeaky beginning saxophone and clarinet, and then 10 years of thunder after I discovered drums. Yeah, they were completely patient, totally supportive, and just always there for it. They have earplugs, probably. No, it's endured. You know, they're they're good parents. They're proper parents. Good parents who were musical, obviously. Yeah, well, my dad was super musical, and my mother was just a really good parent who just understood the the right way to to uh, operate around children, just to give them the amount of room they need. You know. Well, certainly uh, helps them flourish. I think. it does. You yeah. can't try. I mean, you can. I don't have kids, so I'm talking out my ass. But to to say, oh, I'm going to make a kid be this is probably the worst thing you could ever do to it's a child. Terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. It's just awful. Were you scared when you had your child? When you had your daughter? Uh, um, I don't know. It was kind of all just a wild adventure, you know. And now I, I look and she's this gorgeous 21 year old. It seems unlikely. This is a word that comes to mind. You know, I, I see her sometimes and I think, wow. Like, oh, that's my little girl, little kid, you know, who used to have, like, always a dirty T-shirt. With, her favorite T-shirt said a girl can never have enough shoes, but it was all horseshoes. She was obsessed with horses and dogs. And she was always kind of dirty and like, she's the kind of kid that would, like, she picked up, a, a, took, found a snake in our pond once and just brought it over to the house. Like, hey, look, I found this In Tennessee? Yeah. Hey, that can be dangerous. No, nah, it, didn't, it didn't have a viper head. It wasn't poisonous. It was oh, just good. like a gopher snake or something. Sure. But she, was, she wasn't spooky. She was a tom- kind of a tomboy, but then she all of a sudden one, one day became glamorous. Like at 16 or 17, she put on her dress and went, holy shit, I'm good looking. Did that freak you out when she started dating? I mean, knowing that I'm sure you've dated some of the most extraordinary women on the planet. Mm. Let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And you know how a man's mind works. Yeah. (laughs) So what was that like? And your daughter's like, I'm ready to date, It's a little freaky, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Plus, my uh, ex and I were divorced by that time, so it felt like it was a bit of a reach just to even have any effect on it, you know? Mm -hmm. It's a great kid and a great traveling companion. We, we have these great, we try to take school breaks together. and We always, we always talk about going to really interesting places and then we, just, we end up going to Washington, D.C. and museum crawling because oh. she's a museum addict. So, yeah. And so am I. So we're fine with just like... But you always have something to talk about in a museum. There's so that's much. That's true. That's yeah. true. So and I always find a good... She's a dancer, so I always try to find a good... Something going on with the ballet or... Uh, we found a great Latin dance company one time. It was fabulous. And then we just spend the days at the Smithsonian crawling around different museums. And Were you always drawn to, the art? I know music, but to the other arts? The oh, art, yeah, the, all uh, of them, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. some people have to grow into that. I, I was there. My first two years were in Detroit with my dad on the road most of the time. And the women that were around me were my mother, 
my grandma, my dad's mother, the opera singer. And sometimes one of my aunts would come up and just to keep my mother company. But there was just nothing but art, or art and opera and music and books. They both, I was reading Lewis Carroll before I started first grade. Goodness. That's how they taught me to read. Through, sure. You know, Twas Brillig and the Slithy Toves did gyre and gamble in the wave, all mimsy were the poor groves and the moam wraths outgrave. Yes, yes, yes. Jabberwock. The walrus and the carpenter went walking hand in hand. My mother recites that all the time. Yeah. She calls my brother Beamish Boy. Beamish Boy. Yeah. Ah, my Beamish Boy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love those poems. That's how they taught me to read. Was it, it's, it's, it was such great phonetic exercise. I have to say, it's so lyrical and yeah. also fantastical. Fantastical, yeah. yeah. if anyone listening, if you haven't read any, get out and read Yeah, get you, get you some Lewis Carroll yeah, pretty quick. Really Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. Yeah. Great poems. Absolutely. Magical, fantastical poems. Mm -hmm. Beware the jabberwock, my son. The claws that bite, the jaws that snatch. Avoid the jujube bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. I think that even you can find him reading these things. There are recordings. Really? Yeah, I believe so. I feel like I remember... It must have been like scroll recordings or something. That's a long time ago. It was, I, I remember being little at Christmas time and that being played on the record player. I think it would, must have been another English actor or something. Maybe. he's a Victorian era. I just I remember. Yeah, but they had ways to record. I thought on the wax, the wax The tubes. wax uh, tubes? Yeah. yeah. They recorded Cylinders. They were yeah. Wax. Yeah, I'll look into that. I'd yeah, love to hear I could have sworn that that was, it was actually, but you're right, it could have been just an, an English actor, but I feel like it wasn't. Who knows? Who the knows? The memory is a funny thing, isn't it? When, let's go back to the music stuff. Uh, you're writing with Glenn Fry. When what was the first song that you wrote together where you thought, huh, this is something? What, was he your? Well, first? there were a few moments where we thought they were all great, and then we, in the light of, in the clear light of the next day, we go. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we would just, a lot of them were just sounds. We'd, we'd smoke a lot of grass and then just then all the glasses I filled. Weird intervals and okay. and then later we'd go what. And, and also we had these managers, they were really nice guys, but they're really square, and they, we'd play them these songs and they'd go, what? <laughs> and, and after about a year of that, we finally one day we just wrote them, like we wrote two or three songs that were really kind of obvious. Really rhythmic, and they went, yeah, that's the way to do it, let's go make a record. And we were like, those are idiotic, we just did that, so you get off our back. You know? But they gave it, got us a record deal with Jimmy Bowen's fledgling record company and uh, they let us make a record so we picked these great musicians Ry Cooter and Doug Kershaw and Jim Gordon and James Burton and all these guys and went in with this kind of it's not very fully realized material but the players are great and it was kind of a start it was a good jump start and then it didn't do anything the record didn't do anything so they said well next time you have to cut other people's songs you have to cut what they call titles meaning they were probably hits once. And, of course, we just said, no, no, that's not what we're doing here, you know, we're songwriters, you can take it or leave it. They left it. So we just didn't record for about a year, and then uh, David Geffen met us, and I said, why aren't you, are you signed to anybody? We went, yeah, we're kind of stuck to this label. He went, ah. And he just bought us off it the next morning. It was 
and then yeah, we were already each better at songwriting by then too so it was it was more deserved than it was i mean our our first label was right to an ex to an extent they just were wrong in the solution we just needed to write a little bit better songs we didn't need to record other people's songs now i love doing other people's songs but but then we really had something to prove you know as as the as you were getting better, when did did all that start to connect with everybody else around Don Henley and then you know Linda on staff? Well, I, anyway, I, all these people. I don't really know. I mean, I I knew, I knew Glenn first, and then we uh, lived in the same building that Jackson lived in, and we hung out a lot, and, and a lot of other writers were around then. Also, Pamela Poland and uh, David Jackson and, and Zivon. A couple of years later, Warren Zivon and. Uh, Jackson got the first record deal with David Geffen and then introduced me to Geffen and then I got a deal and then Glenn and Don Henley put Eagles together and got a deal and, and I, I already knew Linda I just uh, I just met Linda in the Tributor one night and I just thought she was the cutest thing I'd ever seen so I just took her by the hand and sat her down beside me and I said I think you should cook me dinner and she said okay I went wow okay great <laughs> Is that so, easy? Yeah, as, as I went over to her house the next night, or the house that she was staying in with an ex-boyfriend, and she made me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That'll get you every time. I took her home and kept her. Yeah. I said, that's it. You're moving your stuff to my house. Did she learn how to cook more? She already could cook. It was just, I don't know, she's just messing with me. Or I love it. No, she actually made, she was quite there a good cook. There she is cook. now. There she is now, yeah. She's quite a good cook, actually. Yeah. Yeah. She's good at everything. I don't, I don't know how. She's were you one of madly in love right from the start? Sort of. Yeah, we we were. We, well, yeah, we we were sitting at somebody's house one night. This guy named Richard Davis, who used to manage Poco, and we were sitting on the floor. There's a bunch of musicians who were playing songs and stuff. This and is Linda Ronstadt. For anyone that isn't sure who we're talking hmm. about, I don't know if I've ever told this before. But she says that I I just wanted to leave, and and she said I. I touched her on the leg and said, let's go. And she said that some electricity went through us. And we both kind of snapped and like, wow, yeah, let's get out of here right now. You know? she's, she's quoted as saying you're the greatest love of her life. That's, I mean, that's big apples. It's big apples, yeah. Yeah. I saw her on uh, Saturday night. She came to the show in Berkeley. Oh, yeah? yeah. Friday night, yeah. Yeah, I still love that woman. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. She's a great friend, great spirit, and just so smart and so fun to talk. She's read every book ever that was important. I one time, uh, I, call, I called her to ask about a quote from a, uh, from a Turgenev book, and she actually said to me, which Turgenev? I went, holy God. Ivan Turgenev, Torrents of Spring, you gave me the book. Oh, him, yeah, it just rattled off the corner. I didn't know there were three Turgenevs. Oh, nothing better than a smart woman, right? It's a sexy exactly. thing. Exactly, it's the sexiest term. Yeah. Gotta read those books, kids. Yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jim Harrison, great novelist and poet, always said, if you, if you want to write great, you better read great. Amen. I tell that to writers and artists all the yeah. time that I get... Same for music. If you, if, you, if you listen to crap, you'll write crap, you know. Yeah, I think that's true. Do you get... 
Well, it's a tricky question to ask somebody like you, but when you hear a lot of the music today, is it frustrating comparatively to the poetry of I know every every era has its music. I get that. It but. does for definitely. It does. Every every generation has its music. Probably every even less than decades. Probably every five or six years, it changes radically. It doesn't frustrate me. It's not my problem. But uh, I think there's always really good music. It's just not on the radio now because several factors. But one is, first was the Communications Act, which. May allowed radio stations to become these huge monopolies. So there are four or five guys writing playlists for the whole country, which is patently insane and violates antitrust laws. Absolutely. And then uh, a few years later, along comes the internet, which completely democratizes everything to an extent. But democracy has a high cost, both in society and in art, particularly because the gatekeepers are gone. So there were. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that there are no Mo Austins and David Geffens and Clive Davises and saying, yeah, I don't know, yes, no, maybe? Because now everybody just sort of hurls things out into the void. If you have Pro Tools or even GarageBand or anything, or just a voice memo in your bedroom, you can make a record on your iPhone and <clears throat> all it takes is uh, just an odd warp in space for it to become viral and that might be the next big thing, and then again, it might not. I, I know of one instance fairly recently, maybe 18 months ago, someone in management that I know took an artist that had been on, I don't know, I guess YouTube and most other platforms singing lullabies to a baby. Millions, millions of hits, millions of, of looks and likes and ticks and tacks and all those things and shares and, and uh, got our record deal nothing it was just one of those phenomena that had more to do with the article the implement of that that shared the music than the actual music itself it's because it's accessible you know I mean nothing sounds better than vinyl but you can't carry 10,000 vinyls around in your pocket you can carry 10,000 songs around on your iPhone so as Linda Ronstadt said to me years ago uh, forget it John David we gave up quality for convenience a long time ago mm. so I was always trying to cheerlead people back into turntables and good stereos and yeah I, there's there's such a experience that's always the word I come to when I think about you go to the record store oh, record store record store and record you pick store. out a record and it's got this beautiful art yeah. on the cover that someone was really specific and particular about and really thought Very. about and then the songs that they selected and the order that they go in and the stories that it all tells not the singles but the story of the album the arc of the album yeah. and then to sit on the floor with your headphones or whatever or in your room and you have the lyrics and you're reading the lyrics and you're reading who they're thanking and you're you're seeing who wrote the songs and it's and who played on them and who played and who on sang them and who and produced and engineered and all the pieces all the parts of the puzzle and it become you become a part of it too because as a listener and it's like this whole big holy moment it is a holy you use the right word it's an experience and i think just walking around with earbuds and flitting around between uh pieces of music or the worst thing to me possible are those shuffles mm. where you just put your program on shuffle and it just mm -hmm. plays random stuff to you it just sounds insane to me it sounds like I'm walking into a, a, you know, a, 
uh, an intersection with cars going every direction. It makes no sense to me. Yeah, and I still make albums like they're albums. I, yeah. st I still make, like I think it's a book every time. And I wanted to start somewhere. And I, I want you to take that vinyl home. And I've really thought about what the cover looks like and the art. And, and, you know, and the it, stories. And the, all stories. the stories. Read along. All the lyrics are in it. And players. And mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a style to it and a feel to it. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's coming around again. It's just a small piece of the market, but it's the only, interestingly enough, it's the only, uh, uh, what's the word, of section, fragment? It's the only piece of the market that grows every year is mm -hmm. vinyl. It's still small. You still have to use the word niche. It's, it's not a big piece, but it's the only piece that gets bigger every year. Yeah, I love vinyl, and I yeah. love going to record stores. Oh, it's it's so such fun. a, it's the same. I love going to bookstores. It's just oh, even better. Yeah, 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 it's great. And they're disappearing thanks to Bezos and his. A few heinous. are coming back though. A few, like, yeah, uh, hope, Parn yeah. Parnassus and Nashville is going very it's strong. It's a good store. Yeah, it really is. It's but we lost Bookman and Bookwoman. I you know. know that bummed me out because they're rare books. Oh goodness, they had great rare books. Uh, section. Yeah, there. they did. Yeah, for sure. And Powell's, of course, in Oregon. And there's some, you know. There's That's the greatest bookstore in America, Powell's. I, I have to too. throw down for Powell's in Portland. Yeah, it's, it's if you want to go to a real bookstore, it's like a whole city block or something. Have you been in the rare books? Heaven. Room? Yes, oh, I've been everywhere so around. Best. Crawled everything around that place. Yeah. It's filled with people who love books and love to read and write, and people with dogs and people with great coffee. And yeah, they the do best. this other thing with the way they categorize, the way they shelve their books is brilliant if you go to look for uh, Dalva or Legends of the Fall by Jim Harrison you find the, the new hardback the trade paperback the used book and the paperback all in the same section yeah. they're together you don't have to go bargain hunting if you want to get Melville you go to Melville it's all in the same spot it's just brilliant yeah, yeah. I love I love Powell's yeah I would live at Powell's yeah right <laughs> I agree with you on that one and there's never enough time when I'm there, too. No, it's. I mean, I, I spend four or five hours there, and I realize I'm starving, and I haven't even yes. covered any distance. They do have yet. a good coffee shop. They do have a good coffee shop. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. All right, now I want to go back again. The Eagles. When the Eagles formed, did you when did you know? Did you think? Did you, when you heard certain bands, did you know immediately or? Did I they, was pretty sure they had something. Yeah. Right away. I mean, that's just magic. It, it was just really powerful. You know, I was in the band for a day. I mean, Geffen and, and Roberts, who were our managers then, s said, maybe, maybe you should be in the band too. You know, if, if three writers good, four writers better, you know. So, uh, or four writers good. Yeah, there's something going so, on yeah, the street here that's, uh, well, you know, that's what people are going to do. Santa Barbara people fight? You wouldn't think so, would They're you? They're like, give me that wine! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, they, they sounded great, just the first four guys. And, and uh, David Geffen suggested that we rehearse together and then play a set for the managers, for Geffen and Roberts, just to see how it went. And we, we played a set uh, at the Troubadour in the afternoon while they were closed for David and Elliot and the guys that worked for them, Ron Stone and John Hartman. And uh, I just remember sort of looking down the line of and thinking, you know, this is just what the world needs. Another band with three acoustic guitar players <laughs> and five harmony singers, you know. And uh, I, I also, I'm, I'm not a very good uh, team player. 
you know, I'm a rogue. So I just told David, I said, look, I, I don't maybe if you give me a bunch of money or something. <laughs> but no, seriously, I, I said, look, we write together anyway. We're going to do that, and and then and it'll be great. We'll make good stuff together. But I think we'd end up hating each other if we were in a band. And I swear to God, Henley looks so relieved. He and Glenn both just look like, whew. <laughs> God, yeah, I have to deal with this guy. You and Don Henley uh, wrote one of my all-time favorite songs. The Heart of the Matter. Yeah, it's one of my all-time favorite songs. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I have to give most of the credit to Don on that. I, I never even heard the, f the second verse until he did the vocal. Mm. And I think that's just one of the most stunning. I forgot to do it tonight, actually. I was, I, I was hoping, but... Yeah, I, I, I thought it was going a little long, and I just I left out a couple of things. But I, I think that whole uh, second verse, these times are so uncertain, there's a yearning undefined, and people filled with rage. Well, you know, they're just wonderful, wonderful lyrics. And uh, I was... I worked on that song a lot, but I, I did not see that train coming through. He, he just came up with that, and... It was absolutely, absolutely stunning. It's a stunning Some song. Some of the best lyrics, yeah. Are there songs after all these years that, were, they, when I perform, for example, there's a song or two that I've written, I think, I'm always going to be madly in love with this song. Is there a particular one or two that just, <laughs> it, it, it'll never be shaken from you? Well, I, don't, I guess, I don't know. I know so many songs. Yeah. <laughs> You've written so many. Well, I also know so many. I mean, sure. after I did the Duke Ellington song tonight, I was I was thinking, you know, I then did a Harold Harold Arlen song, and then I did a Hank Williams song. That Hank the, Williams, that, that was that fantastic. Eerie? Oh, I love that. Thank you. I, I had never played it in that key Rambling before. Rambling Man, is that what Rambling it's Man, yeah. yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it is very operatic, uh, though, yeah. isn't it? It's really it's huge like an and opera dramatic. Dirge. And, yeah. It is, yeah. And so I just sort of took it to the piano and shaped all this sort yeah, of orchestral it. stuff around it and you know, it was it was moving that was the most fun i had tonight yeah mm -hmm. it's good that you still have fun after all these years and i asked you at dinner do you still get nervous and you said oh yeah, yeah every night yeah 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 uh, and it's it's right. worse if i pretend i'm not <laughs> yeah so i just sometimes i just jump up and down right before i go on woo, woo, just bounce up and down on my feet like uh pogo as the uh, the Eagles album started selling like it did, how as a songwriter and as a and just to be a part of something like that, did was your hair just blowing back constantly, or did you did it even make sense? <laughs> no, I don't think I really made sense of it. I mean, it, uh, uh, I mean the one part of it was obvious: this money, 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 money. It was nice to have money just coming to a business manager. I'd never had a business manager before. Check in and I'd look in on it, and there'd be thousands of dollars there. And I go, it's amazing, you know. I was just a, a, a jobbing musician before. I played dates, and then maybe I got fifty bucks, and maybe I got a hundred bucks, and so to suddenly be getting checks for thousands of dollars was enlightening. The whole fame thing I, I, I was disappointing to me. The only time I was really famous for a while was when Your Only Only was a big hit, and I found it more disturbing than pleasant it doesn't seem to suit your personality no having known you for a couple of years yeah, now i mean no, you just no, seem too cranky for this <laughs> you're kind of cranky <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but it's endearing. <laughs> That's nice to hear. Thanks. It's pretty harmless. I don't mean ill to anybody. I just am lost in my own world sometimes. Sure. If someone comes up and goes, oh, hey, and the, the, that bubble kind of, you know, they they have a bubble that they think they're piercing, but it's not exactly the same bubble. I'm just in the grocery store trying to get the right size batteries for something, and so to see someone sort of, you know, telling me how wonderful something is or being like one of those people in the line tonight was almost tearful and uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm appreciative and, and grateful and I, I would not be living the life I live without that but well, it feels a little strange to me I don't yeah the gift of the songwriter you're helping people say the things they don't know how to say and to feel that they're you're unlocking parts of themselves perhaps that they've locked away because they, do you think I do I really do I think uh, that when you hear a song if you hear a happy song or you're working out song or your deep cry you play a thousand times in a row just broke up with someone's song those Whatever are the only is, kind I write what, I, what are happy songs and working out songs I don't have I'm any just, I'm talking. I'm talking in the royal sense oh. yeah it's, I think when people hear songs that connect to them and allow them to think and feel and be a part of themselves that they don't know how to touch without without it you be, you become that touchstone right you become a part of them jd Souther wrote this song and every word is something that i felt and thought and it's become a part of my bloodstream and when i meet you then suddenly you it's it's like a thank you thank you for helping me release this demon of whatever it is inside of me and i think that's what happens that's the transference it's a communion between listener and writer i'd like to think that's what it is i'm gonna listen to this podcast just to hear you say that again that was so smart i think i think probably so i I'm, i feel like that with other people's songs so I'm glad people feel that way about mine sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. But my introduction to music was so strange. You know, I didn't hear... The first thing I heard wasn't, you know, felt people sitting around with a banjo or music on the radio or something. It was my grandma taking me to, to hear, you know, Nelson Dorma, Nelson Dorma, to hear, you know, Puccini. So, and she said to me when she said, now that's a song. And I went, yes, it is. That's absolutely a song. Think of how that's shaped your writing, though. All that. Tremendously, I'm yeah, sure. Absolutely. To be raised up in a, as a classical musician, I mean, you can hear, I mean, you can hear it. You can hear it in your melodies and uh, in the cadence. The, the words, poetry has a, has a musicality to itself, right? Words, when we speak, hopes, there's a musicality yeah. to how we say what we're feeling and such. So... It, it all makes sense to me that I can hear your your upbringing, your musical upbringing in what you do. We should be doing this for camera. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gesticulating wildly. <laughs> I'm loving it. Uh, I'm conducting as I You are conducting. <laughs> you have a conductor in your soul there. Right. Yeah. It's sort of a conductor-paintbrush yeah. combo. <laughs> There you go. I listen to music a lot when I paint. Oh, of course, yeah. 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 And it's interesting to see how the music shapes the painting, obviously, because wow, I, yeah. I'm, whatever I'm listening to, that story is weaving itself through me and, and the colors I choose and the textures and all that. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think about that when I go to museums and I look up at the artwork or the sculptures or, or whatever, and 
But they didn't have recorded music. No, they they, then. they didn't. But I think about what did they what were they thinking? what were they thinking was, what were was they the, hearing was the window open and there were right. birds was there somebody arguing outside like was just there, now yeah yeah what was playing in their heads yeah yeah wow yeah it's pretty wild or did they just come from what was Rembrandt thinking when he when he got that light just right and figured out a way to use this sort of refracted light in a way no one had used before that yeah. gave skin a kind of a glow and a sort mm. of a natural but mystical thing. What was he thinking? What is it's, it? What was he hearing? It's a know? touch from the gods. Yeah, you know? I it think really so. is. It's whatever it is that the, the creators are doing, whether it's Steve Jobs or you or you know whatever. Who the creators? They're 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 taking from the universal flow. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's all just sort of swirling around. But I, I'm not. You know, I don't have the Deepak Chopra thing. I don't think this consciousness is non-local kind of bullshit really holds any water but I think within each brain is the ability to apprehend a lot more territory mm-hmm. than we're, we're than we're introduced to when we're children because as as small children your your senses are almost unbounded your 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 and your fences as well are almost unbounded you can go anywhere in your head and society and your parents and schools and everything begin to shape you and cramp you and crimp you into these smaller sized things and uh, it's probably necessary to some degree just to keep an orderly society but it, the trade-off is that some kids who have probably almost unlimited possibilities get squashed in it because I think almost I think within almost every brain I think everybody's an artist to some extent it just you know it's some of us get it beaten out of us and some are fortunate enough not to have it beaten out of us, to have it nourished and and watered and and have parents that are thrilled by it instead of parents that are threatened by it. Mm-hmm. I think about you know the stories of the kids that sneak out to go to the concerts, yeah. things, you know, so that they can get their taste of what is it maybe allowed at home or. That's, yeah. I love that act of rebellion. Yeah, I do too, and I, I, I guess I participated in it to some degree, but I don't know why, because it was all okay with, I mean, you know, I heard music first with my mom and with my dad and, and my grandma, and with every adult that I knew after that, and I, I heard it all my life. I was, and when I started sneaking out and going to see, we went to the, we went to a, a club that was in the black part of town called Carter's Tavern, Percy Carter. Uh, all the all the black acts that came through Amarillo, Texas, the big acts, James Brown, Jackie Wilson, the guys played at the fairgrounds, but all the blues guys, Albert King, BB King, Freddie King, the King family. <laughs> All the blues guys, Bobby Blue Bland, all the great blues guys played at the club at Carter's Tavern. And me and, uh, well, two guys that were in a, the band, that I, one of the bands I was in in high school that were much older than me, they were in college and I was in high school, we were the only white people ever in this place. And this guy, Percy, after a while, just got, it was, it was cool to see, he'd be glad to see us coming. I was too young to even be in there. But we'd go in and just see this amazing music, and I was not sneaking out. I would talk to my dad about it, you know. Man, you hear this horn chart on, you know. Yeah, it was, it was pretty great, you know. People that. could play, play your dad, you know, midnight hour. Isn't that cool, you know. 
great corn chart. Yeah, that's great what the bass player is doing too. That's how lucky are you? Is that extremely extraordinary? lucky? Extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, yeah, holy extremely cow. lucky. Yeah, just this amazing. Do you yeah. do you recall the first time you heard Linda Ronstadt sing? No, actually, <laughs> I don't. Really? No, I remember seeing her first and just thinking she was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Mm. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure I heard. Uh, what was the Stone Ponies record? The different, one? different drum. Oh. The first hit when she was in the Stone Ponies. I'm sure I heard it on the radio. I was in college in Texas. Uh, yeah, in Texas still in college, and I'm sure I heard a uh, long, long time on the radio probably. Uh, but I, I, it didn't. It must not have registered any more than wow, what a fabulous singer, you know. And then um, I don't know. I just saw her and I went, man, that's that's for me. <laughs> if uh, living or dead musician who would you like to let's just go with somebody that's passed away because you could probably talk to any musician as it is but uh, someone who's passed away from any any um, century who would you want to sit down and have a chatter with Bach yeah of course yeah. yeah yeah I would like to hear him play the Goldberg variations I'll settle for Glenn Gould playing it, which is about as good as music gets, the first version in the 50s. But, uh, yeah, I, I would love to watch Johann Sebastian Bach at work. Speaking of touching God. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. I'd sure Not like to hang out with Miles, too, although Not I know he, he would have been creepy and rude to me, but I still would have dug it. You know? Yeah. I saw him, when I first moved to Hollywood, I went to see him in a little jazz club, and he fired somebody on stage, and I thought, that's the weirdest thing. <laughs> this guy, he just cut this guy loose, man, during a set, you know. Yeah? You're out of here. You know? you, so when we had dinner, you said something about uh, being shot at? Yeah, I got shot at a couple times. But Wait, and once somebody tried to break into my car when I was living in uh, Beechwood Canyon, second house I had in Beechwood Canyon. Uh, after Linda and I broke up the second time, I think. Although she was at that house too a few times. Um, somebody was trying to break into one of my cars and my neighbor across the street, Russ Jaguer, who was in the uh, group called The Association, uh, who had the first uh, hit song about marijuana called Along Came Mary. Anyway, he was my neighbor across the street and he saw this guy trying to jimmy his way into my, into my car and he came over and grabbed the guy in a headlock and bashed him against my car and the guy ran off down the street and and uh, Russ came out came in I heard this ruckus and Bill Martin was there this the co uh, comedy writer that I mentioned tonight they came in the house and said, what was that all about he said oh, this guy was trying to break into your car and I grabbed him and said, I said guy took off down the street we went when we're all in laughing about it and drinking and all of a sudden shots started coming through the window right, right over my head like Holy literally shit. right by my head I hear this sound that bullets make they're coming through the glass windows big Spanish house the glass window and the sort of carpet we'd hung as a curtain I guess it was pretty thick so it was going through those things and then hitting the plaster wall in the Spanish house right above my head literally like two three inches beside my temple and I just said everybody should get down I remember saying that I don't know why I was so calm but I said get down and I went and grabbed my rifle but the guy had already peeled off down the street and I wasn't going to start shooting into Hollywood from up in the hills but it was pretty exciting wow that makes my heart race it, it was uh, yeah it was a rush for sure
Thank God for those curtains, probably. I don't. I don't know. I think he was just shooting from such a low angle. It's Hollywood Hills. We were, so in, every house is above the street. Mm. So he's shooting from probably thirty yards away and twenty feet below us. So they're all going over my head, but just. Jesus, that's so crazy. <laughs> and I know he could see our silhou silhouettes because yeah. we were inside the house and it was lit up. Sure. He's aiming for the shadows, thank God. He's starting to shoot. Yeah, he was hitting the shadows. Aim for the shadows. Yeah. <laughs> what about Cuba? What made you go to Cuba? For the um, thing with you, you named I've it. I've been to Cuba a couple times. Yeah, I really like Cuba. On stage tonight, you talked about um, a songwriting event. Yeah, I went with a bunch of songwriters. Uh, it was a thing that this guy, Roy Allen Scott, put together called Bridge, uh, Music Bridges. And he did it with several countries, but the first one that he put together was this trip of songwriters to go to Cuba. And this is back when you had to have a government permit. So we had to get a, an official invitation from the Ministry of Education because the premise was, from their end, that they were educating us about socialism. It'll the, catch on. Yeah, right. <laughs> so thus did all of these... Um, American songwriters and a few Brits too, but mostly all American songwriters ended up 20 of us hmm. on a charter plane to Havana to write with Cuban artists. We stayed in the old Nacional Hotel on the Maracon Road and it was fabulous, fabulous. And Woody Harrelson was Woody there? Harrelson was the star of the whole trip, despite all these incredible luminaries, Burt Bacharach, Bonnie Raitt, Indigo Girls, uh, Lisa Loeb, I, I can't remember all Michelle. people. Michelle Adigliacello, who saved my life one night. I was I was trying to cut something in the studio, and I was just doing terrible at it. I wasn't. I was late. The, the deal was we were supposed to write in the daytime and then record it at night. It was a, like a songwriter clinic. I don't know. It was a thing. You were, sad, you were supposed to be on some kind of schedule. And I just was so far behind, and she just stepped into the studio behind me, and she just put her... And I, also, I, I had shaved my beard and shaved my head. And I thought, I don't know why I thought it would be cool, because I just looked like a plucked chicken to me. <laughs> and I was sitting there just feeling self-conscious and weird, and like the song wasn't good enough, and it wasn't done, and I needed a bass player really bad. And she's that a badass. This gorgeous black woman comes in, puts her hand on the back of my little bald head, and goes, what's so sad about this handsome boy? What's you so sad about? And I said, oh my God. I said, would you play bass with me? And she goes, of course. And she grabbed a bass, and we cut this whole she's thing. She's a badass. She is bad, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't know Woody Harrelson was a songwriter. He, listen, Woody, uh, here's the way we wrote the songs. Every morning we would eat a, a late breakfast down in this big plaza. It was a restaurant, sort of, there's probably a better word for that, but it was like a plaza to me. And there, and there was a big fish bowl, glass bowl, with all of our names on pieces of paper. And we would draw to see who we were going to go right with that day. So the first morning, it was it was supposed to be two Americans and two Cubans. So the first morning, I draw, and the American I drew was Peter Buck from REM. And the Cubans were a kid named Raul. I can't think of this kid's last name now. It's been driving me crazy for about two weeks. And this beautiful woman, this woman named Yidara, began with a Y, Yidara. And she was so beautiful, you could hardly look at her. She was just... I mean, I would see people looking at her, and, and they would just stop in mid-sentence. And get, she just looked like a painting. She was fabulous looking. So 
the four of us became a team for the week. And after the second day, and I, and I had a Russian translator who was very beautiful too, who translated into Spanish. And so the four of us, after a couple of days, and this kid Raul had a job. He, he was there late, so he didn't get there every morning. So these two beautiful women and Peter Buck and I would just go adventuring around Cuba. And the second day, we just went, why draw any more names? We're happy the way things are. <laughs> but I got to know Woody Harrelson a little bit, and he, the first group that he was in was a really odd group. There, there were too many people for, it all, for every group to work out at, as two Americans and two Cubans. So one of the songwriting groups on the first day was Bonnie Raitt, <laughs> Bert Bacharach, Woody Harrelson, and uh, it's two Cubans, and uh, Bonnie's, we had lunch together after, we, we'd write for a while and then we'd have another meal. And I sat down with Bonnie, I said, how's your group going? She goes, because they knew Woody Harrelson was in her, her group. And, and she said, well, we sat down as soon as we had picked up any guitars Woody had the first two lines of the song and they were we got blue skies just like you guys and she said you see what I'm up against and I went I think you're in heaven I think that's the coolest thing we could be doing down here is to not take it real you know not get all serious and heavy just have fun with these people this is supposed to be a party so we, we all ride for the rest of the week, and it was really good. And of course, she she realized that it was it was a cool thing to do. And there were all these different groups and all these different songs, and we all played a concert Saturday night at the Karl Marx Memorial Theater. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Come on. And it was like everything else the Russians did in the '70s. It was ugly and concrete, and well, it wasn't Russia; it was Soviet Union. It's just a big square box of an auditorium that didn't sound good and the plumbing didn't work and the sound system was just crap and it was just horrible. But on the Wednesday night, in the middle of the week, we saw the Buena Vista Social Club. Oh, man. Because they were there, their movie was debuting that mm. week with the director, Rod Cooter was down there and Barry Levinson was down. It was, it was fantastic. It was the best concert I've ever seen in my life. Before any of the social club people started dying off, they, they, that album had just hit, mm -hmm. and the Cubans were so grateful to see all these people back together again that the audience was everything from literally toddlers clowning around down in the front rows to guys on people with walkers in their 80s and 90s who remembered those guys playing in the 50s. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was just this fabulous evening of music. So anyway, we do. That's great. We go back to our writing jobs and our adventures, which for a couple of days of the week involved us hiking over to this one place and feeding this horse that we thought looked emaciated, stealing hay from one place and, or, or uh, I mean, yeah, wheat from the place and, and taking it to this horse. It wasn't exactly a writing session, but um, anyway, Saturday night. So the big night for the show comes. And Joan Osborne was part of this group too, and she killed it. She just, she sang so well and wrote this thing. And she, you know, she's a great singer. And she just came out and she was sick that day. We went to a baseball game. She and Lisa Loeb and I to see the Cuban Nationals play the Baltimore Orioles. It was a pretty fabulous thing. Sat right behind Fidel and Woody Harrelson, who struck up an immediate palship with Fidel. Of course he did. 
Because he's Woody Harrelson. He's Woody Harrelson. I freaking love He's him. the coolest guy in the entire world, you know. So uh, we do, <laughs> we're doing the concert, and some songs are more serious than others, but what do you think was the song that was the killer song of the whole night? Woody's probably. Woody's song, yeah. which ended up being called Cuba's Way Too Cool. And it started with, we got blue skies, just like you guys. And then the end of the chorus was, Cuba's way too cool. And he, he wasn't playing an instrument. He had these big kind of cargo pants on. He was doing this sort of dance back and forth across the stage. And it just, it was the, the biggest hit of the entire week. Man, I love it. That's wonderful. Yeah. It, it was it was great. He said he told the best story I've ever heard too about getting high. We were sitting, we were eating lunch with Barry Levinson and his son because he was down there. I think he was filming the baseball game, and it was Woody and and Barry and his son and I and we were talking about smoking pot, and uh, one of us asked Barry if he'd ever smoked pot, and he went, "Well, yeah, I did once in Aspen, Colorado, years ago," and and. He said, I was standing in the bathroom with a towel around me and a joint in my hand, and I couldn't remember whether I was about to take a shower or whether I'd just taken a shower. <laughs> <laughs> and Woody, without blinking an eye, Woody just said, welcome to my world. <laughs> perfect. And I thought, I like this guy. That's perfect. Like, yeah. I love it. All right, I want to end on the newest record that you made. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's awesome. I own it on vinyl. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I have to get you to sign it one of these years. I have to schlep it to back to Nashville. Get you to sign it. How about if I schlep out to LA? I mean, I would love that. Yeah, I'll for be sure. there on Sunday. Oh, you will. Mm -hmm. So will I. Are you serious? <laughs> what are the chances? <laughs> Uh, you had written it as a movie? It's funny. Well, I, I wanted it. I, I was sort of taught, yes. It, when it, you sang the song tonight, I, I thought, man. You I can could, see that scene. Well, I, I, I thought, why doesn't he write it as a musical? I would. I could see that, that album being a Broadway play. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, all right. Let me be your agent. Okay. <laughs> Sign right here. <laughs> you got a team. Let's put on a play. <laughs> I know, we'll rent a barn. <laughs> Wait, I have a barn. You have a barn. I think you could probably get a few steps up from a barn. So, well, but maybe. talk about the record. Oh, I don't know what to say about it. It's not. It's, it's called Tenderness. Go check it out. Tenderness. Yeah. Yeah, it's called Tenderness. It's on Sony Music Masterworks, and I think it's and it's lovely. It is. Thank you. Yeah. I, I like it. I think yeah. it's lovely too. It's produced by Larry Klein, brilliant friend of mine and brother. We address each other as mon frère. And he did a magnificent job producing it. And these beautiful uh, string charts are by Billy Childs, brilliant jazz musician and arranger and piano player. Mm. And it's really orchestral and beautiful and yet very intimate. And I don't know what I'll do next time, but that, uh, that was my orchestra album for a while. It's lovely. It really is. Thank you. What's for people listening? Uh, what is the best way to find you? Is it on social media? Is it to go and you know? I've just started doing that. I sent out little a couple of Instagrams the last few days, and I'm amazed. I'm getting all these. I've never done it before. I'm getting all What's these. What's your Insta handle? Uh, Do you know my name? It's just your name. Uh -huh. 
I'm shocked. Well, are, you, are you supposed to have a, like a yeah, it's code like, or something? Well, it's at, and then, you know, yeah. sometimes it's your name, sometimes it's your name plus music, because people will take famous people's names and make it their own. So I Oh, I'm not that famous. You're pretty famous. Yeah. Yeah. In my world, for certain. Well, I, I think I, when I first heard about Instagram, I just picked it. I, I got it right away, because I missed getting my dot .com. With, you, with my name and then some asshole tried to sell it to me for oh. thousands of dollars and yeah. I'm like don't be ridiculous somebody bought my name believe it or not yeah yeah they do it they just scrounge them up like yeah. scavengers like yeah. they're yeah so I just used .net but it, it's it, I, it, JD Souther .net yeah. yeah yeah well and I'll put I'll but I'm on Facebook and it's it's at it's just JD Souther on Instagram yeah but, I'll um I, I like every every episode I put a, everything on a links on the links page on oh, podcast.com so people just go there and find everything good yeah good and here's another thing I just met someone I, I'm gonna start doing uh some art some some really limited run t-shirts I met some girls a band called the Rainbow Girls do you know those girls mm-hmm. Rainbow Girls mm-hmm. fabulous band from uh, I think they got together here they live in Oakland now but I think they're Santa Barbara Girls and uh, their manager is a friend of mine and stepped into the breach when my tour manager got hurt uh, in uh D.C. a few weeks ago and she just took over for a few days and did a great job and then I met them I saw them play they're fantastic and uh, they do this thing with I, she said why don't you do t-shirts and I went I'm not a t-shirt act no one's going to buy my t-shirts and I said it's because it, if you just put tour dates on them no nobody cares about that anymore get someone who to do something that's artistic do a small run just order 100 of them or something or we order them 25 at a time I said wow I really can do that and she goes yeah, yeah the girls do it themselves and I went really will they do one of mine draw something sure it's that it's that simple so maybe I'll, I'll try a few things like that I love it perfect yeah I mean, and now I'm on the Instagram. Anything can happen. I know, know? right? I used to think it was the devil. Turns out it's where I can see all these cute dog, you know, videos. How many dog Instagrams do you follow? Oh, God. A lot. Sick. A lot. Yeah, a lot. They're the best, though. God, it's such a respite from the the world. It is. (laughs) Big dog's face, smiley face. Dogs are the best smiles. They're the best. Yeah, Yeah. they really are. And cats, too. I, I like cats, too. Yeah, they don't and so much smile as kind no. of like... Yeah, I, yeah, they have to be... I mean, it is the difference, the evolutionary difference between pack hunters and solo hunters. Right. Dogs need. Cats, hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because you're more of the solo than the pack. And I am, yeah, and I love dogs. I love to be dogs? worshipped by my dogs. <laughs> 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 because I sort of worship them too. I would squeeze them so hard they'd pop if they'd let me. Yeah, you know. no, they're the best. I, I just love them, yeah. yeah. Well, I, wa- you know, I watched the two dogs before this, the Bully Boys, who we affectionately call the Bruise Brothers because they were such... They were pit bulls? Yeah. Yeah. Or some blend of yeah, yeah, you sure. know, Tennessee brown hounds. Yeah. You know? And they were so wonderful with, with Anya, with my kid. You know, they were, they were just fabulous. These little girls would ride them, put shoes on them, hats, sunglasses, all this. Put you know a dog, you know their their lead, and then treat it like a harness and run around the yard behind them. It wasn't all really great for the dogs, but dogs have this sense about the innocence of children. Yeah. You know, and. And they absolutely adored her, and she them, and it just even further cemented my love for dogs. 
which I, I have deep anyway mm -hmm. in me. I can't stand to be without dogs. It's the worst thing about being on the road is waking up in a hotel room and there's no dogs in bed. Yeah. I just scared away every potential girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I think you'll be fine. But they are, they kind of, they're sort of allowed everything in my house. There's, the dogs are not forbidden anything. Yeah. Although, You've got a good house for it, though. I do have a good house yeah. for it, don't I? You've yeah. got a good dog's house. Yeah. And I also have that big field with a dog door, so. Yeah. They have, I think they're in heaven. They're, <laughs> it's yeah. pretty fat city for dogs. Yeah. yeah. J.D., thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. It's a long time coming. And I know. You're very I gracious know. to do this after a show, and you're probably just I appreciate it. Bye, everybody. Bye. You're my one of my favorite humans. Really? Yes. Oh, mine too. Thank you. It means a lot to me. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you.